Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis LA and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello, could I please speak with Pico Aya? Paul, this is Pico. I'm so happy to hear your voice again. Can you can you hear me relatively clearly? I can hear you so clearly, as if you were here, <laughs> which which I wish were the case, but none of us can really be here, whatever here means. I actually wish you were here, because of course here in Japan we're under far fewer restrictions than in California, so you would be enjoying blue skies and cherry blossoms and a real sense of springtime renewal and hope if you were here. Tell me about how things are in Japan, because um, not surprisingly, we we don't hear very much. So I have no no sense. So maybe you can paint a picture for me of the cherry blossoms, of how people are feeling about the the global news, but also how they are going about living their their lives, both public and private. Yes, I mean, I think one could say that Japan is always a little far from the global news, sadly. But Japan is always very good at going about its daily business. And I'd say there's really a festive sense of people streaming out to greet the cherry blossoms that are beginning to shade every um, stream and path. Uh, the days are blue-skied and brilliant. And um, I stress all this because, as you remember, only a month ago, Japan was really one of the country's first in the line of fire because um, so close to neighboring China where the virus broke out. And I suppose it reminds me how quickly these things are changing. I flew from Japan to California just for a day, exactly a month ago. And at that time, of course, Japan was the danger zone, and California was relatively safe. And now things have turned turned around so quickly in Japan that it gives me hope that in Europe and North America and elsewhere they could change too. Now, I've got to say that, as you know, the Japanese are very good at maintaining a cheerful face, regardless of what's happening within, because that's almost a social obligation. It's a way of giving heart and uh, optimism to others. And it also has to be said that the Japanese always are wearing masks, literal and figurative. So to see a street where 60% of the people are wearing masks, as I do today, is not so different from what I see every year, where people wear masks to protect themselves and others from um, sickness. Of course, Japan is well known for its obsession with hygiene, its obedience and its efficiency. So perhaps, perhaps more than other countries, it was able to um, respond to this emergency swiftly and and to begin to contain it. But nonetheless, it really gives me a sense of, of cheer and hope to be here now and to think that maybe this is what's not in the distant future for you too and everyone else. We can only hope. You, you stay um, away from the news as much as possible in in some way. I think out of 
a, a general disposition of wanting to maintain a certain form of stillness and quiet. And you, you, you said to me that now there's kind of a, a forced hiatus uh, that this moment in time, this global pandemic has created. Do you, do you, do you have a sense um, by maintaining that distance that you have a better understanding of the world and because you're staying away from the, the daily noise we are, we're so prone to all the time? Well, my hope is always to try to see things in a larger perspective. And I would genuinely say the main reason I stay away from the news is that I've been a journalist, as you know, for 37 years, responsible for reporting the news. And so that's made me keenly aware that almost every day there's maybe two minutes worth of news. And I believe it's very important to be informed, to take precautions, to know what's going on so as how to best respond to them. But I would feel that from a journalist's point of view, and maybe from a doctor's too, the ideal recipe for sanity is maximum of five minutes a day of news and possibly much, much less than that. And I think as a writer, I'm, you know, I'm practicing social distancing for a living almost, and I spend a lot of my time being still. But sitting still has really enforced to me um, two things. One, that what happens to us is much less important than what we make of what happens. In other words, circumstances are determining us less than what our mind does. And secondly, what we put into our system will reflect uh, what comes out of our system. So I feel if I spend an hour reading Proust or Shakespeare or Melville, I'm taken, or Zadie Smith, I will be taken to a much deeper, more intimate, attentive state of being. I'll be brought to my best self. If I spend an hour at a newsstand, I feel chopped up and distracted and jangled, and really, I lose a sense of what's important in my life and in the world's life. So I, I always feel that books are a much better way of keeping up with the news than newspapers or television broadcasts, partly because um, they give us that larger picture. They remind us that everything passes. They recollect to us that 100 years ago, this very year, when the Spanish flu epidemic was striking Europe, uh, Scott Fitzgerald wrote a wonderful little passage about them stocking up for a month under quarantine. He met Hemingway, and he was very worried that Hemingway hadn't washed his hands. And Hemingway, in a state of bravado, was saying, oh, this is just a regular flu, which it wasn't. But word for word, what you would see in the newspaper today, but 100 years ago, and the fact it was 100 years ago puts it in a, in a larger perspective. So I think the news actually takes us away from what's happening and its meaning. Um, and if there's truly five minutes of news every day, that means that there are 23 hours and 55 minutes of speculation, opinion, debate, padding, none of which is, is really helping us come to a clear understanding of what's going on. You know, in a, in a, in a wonderful interview uh, you had an, in the Financial Times just about a year ago, you were asked what the greatest challenge for our time is. And you said, climate change. I think that's another way of saying we're so caught up in our tiny screens, we can't see the larger picture. Exactly. And I think, you know, we live under this illusion of control. And we almost have to live 
under the assumption we can plan tomorrow and we know what's going to happen next week. But I think moments like this are useful because really we all feel how the world has been accelerating almost beyond control. And most of us have much more information coming in on us than we have time or space to make sense of it. And the fact that many of us are brought to an enforced halt right now is a bit of a wake-up call and it's a great opportunity for us to recall what our proportions and priorities really are. Because we're racing around and driving on the jam-packed 405 freeway in Los Angeles. It's really hard to think, what are the three most important things in my life and who do I want to be 10 years from now and how can I best help my friends and family? Now we are suddenly um, being given that opportunity. In my own case, I was also thinking, so for example, I've had 17 public events cancelled in the next few weeks. And so I'm losing most of my revenue for the foreseeable future. But having the chance to stay put, actually, since I'm not imprisoned and I'm not sick, sort of is a liberation. And it makes me think, why am I really doing those events? Do I, is that what I want to be spending my life doing? Couldn't I perhaps live more simply, not racing around so much, and still support my aging mother, my wife, and, and my kids? And suddenly it's jolted me out of my familiar patterns and habits and made me think maybe I don't need to be thinking about my revenue so much and maybe I could be thinking more about my inner resources. I'm sorry to have cut you off. No, 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 no. Um, what, what is so surprising is it seems to me that thinking about you as I have for the last three decades or more that we've known each other, maybe more, maybe nearly four decades, um, you have a simple life in so many ways. And you want to, th- this this pandemic makes you want to simplify it further. And I'm reminded of a quotation that with these quarantine tapes, I, I will... I will quote, I think, to every single guest whenever the opportunity offers itself. And as you know, I love nothing more than quoting. It's a wonderful quotation from the Pensée of Pascal, where he simply says, All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And I'm very happy to have that quoted of me, Paul, because I'm constantly turning to both Pascal and that particular quotation. And I'm remembering, as you probably recall, a few years ago, um, there was a test partly conducted at Harvard, and more than 60% of men said they would rather receive shock therapy than sit 20 minutes alone in a room without distraction. Women, of course, did much, much better on the test. But if men have come to such a state where they'd rather endure shock therapy than enjoying the prescription that wise Pascal passed on to us, we're really um, in a bad way. And this is our chance to rectify ourselves and get back in line with the way that humans have rather sensibly been living for, for centuries. And I think one reason I moved to Japan from California was this is a culture that for 1,400 years has been living with tsunami and forest fire and um, and earthquake and warfare. And so, as W.H. Orton wrote about the old masters, it knows about suffering. It's an elder that has realized that suffering is both universal, it's what brings out the best in us, it's what links us together. And actually, in Japan, it's what 
helps us to see the joy in every moment because we don't take it for granted. But if you're aware that your days are finite, you bring much more attention to what's around you and you notice today's a beautiful day. Why don't I go and relish it instead of just sleepwalking through until it's too late? So they have this wonderful phrase here in Japan about life being um, a joyful participation in a world of sorrow. So mortality, sickness, uncertainty, those are part of the human deal, sad to say. But that doesn't mean a diminishing of joy. It actually draws our attention more to appreciating the blessing that we do have. And for example, right now, I feel quite lucky to be um, healthy, to be in a relatively prosperous city, to be in the middle of the sunshine. So evanescence, in a way, uh, brings more value uh, to the pleasures of living as a pass. Exactly. Beautifully said, yes. We can't take the moment for granted, and let's, let's cherish and celebrate the moment. And you've had that, that moment in your life so often where you've lost everything. And so this, this feeling that people have now of, of, of losing so much is something that, that you've lived and I'm wondering what perspective that gives you on this moment. Yes, and really, I think, to be honest, Paul, I, I, I know I've known you through the loss of your parents, and I think everybody, when they stop to think about it, everybody's been through loss. That's an equal opportunity employer in some ways. But you're right that um, when I was relatively young, my family home burnt down in what was then uh, the, the worst fire in Californian history, and I lost literally everything um, I earned. And it really brought home to me uh, what I was saying a couple of minutes ago, which is that um, nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so, as Shakespeare said in Hamlet. In other words, in that first fire, 450 people lost their homes in Santa Barbara. And I think some of them were traumatized for life to this day, they're scarred by it, and others, after a period of adjustment, realized that in the aftermath of losing everything, they had the chance to set their life upon a different course and do things differently. In my case, I lost all my notes for all the books I was going to write, so I started writing fiction, which I might have been too scared or shy to write um, otherwise. I realized, well, I don't have a home anymore in California. I can spend more time in Japan or the places that feel like my deepest home. Um, our insurance policy allowed us to replace most of our possessions, and I realized 90% of them I didn't need. I really could. It was a crash course in that sense, in living more simply. And um, in so many ways, if I were to think back on that forest fire now, I wouldn't say it was completely a bad thing. I would say that it made possible many of the things I rejoice in now. I mean, I must say, to this day, when I see flames of orange rising over the hills of Southern California, which, of course, I do more and more, it turns a chill down me, and it's, it's left a scar. I'll, I'll always be unsettled by fire more than I would be. But um, I, I don't think I can complain about being a victim of real life, because everybody is, one way or another. A victim of real life. That's such an extraordinary expression. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm. Um, I, I, let's go back for a moment to to um, w what literature in this particular case can afford us, which is that 
people now find themselves without shock therapy, men and women alike, with, with what seems like much more time. And some of them are going back or starting again to read. And probably you've heard that in Italy, they sold tens of thousands of copies of Camus' The Plague, so many that they had to republish the book. And I'm wondering what this movement back to, whether it's Camus or whether it's to the Decameron or whether it's to Saramago or whether it's to the the Journal of the Plague Year of Defoe, people are feeling that, that literature might be able in some form or fashion, if not to give them the answers, to give them something that they they crave, like maybe a shard of hope. Exactly. I think books are the best friends we ever have. They never let us down. They engage us in the deepest conversation. They open our horizons. They allow us to see how other people live and to feel how other people live. And um, Because I didn't, don't follow the news, I didn't know that fact about Camus in Italy, but it makes absolute sense. But if people are reading P.G. Woodhouse or um, Elizabeth Stroud or almost any book that offers companionship or solace or light, that's, that's a wonderful thing. And I love the way that you began that question with just pointing out that we have more time than we have habitually had in recent years. And I think that's the great luxury in life, much more than money, to have time. And I'm delighted if people are reading, but I'm glad if they're sketching or listening to music or playing the piano or um, taking a walk, as I gather you still are allowed to do in certain places. You or, are, you are. cooking. You are. And I, I'm, I, of course, predicting the future is, is a very, a very dangerous thing to do. And I, I remember Mark Twain said that um, it, it's particularly difficult to predict, uh, to make predictions, particularly about the future. And so, um, <laughs> you, you know, with with that in in mind, I'm I'm still wondering from from the point of view of of stillness and of your time living in in that fashion uh, at times with your good friend Leonard Cohen. I'm I'm wondering if you have a sense of how people might, I mean, people or how maybe some of humanity might come out of this um, this pandemic, because it too will pass. It too will pass. And I think we'll come out humbled, chastened, with a deeper sense of what really matters to us. And with an appreciation of some of the things, whether it's family or reading or stillness or time, that we've forgotten about in our helter-skelter 21st century rush. Um, when one thinks of books, one of the books I often give to my friends if they're feeling down or sick is a book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Shunryu Suzuki. And once this wise Zen monk was asked towards the end of his life, what, what, how can you distill your wisdom? And just as you said, he said two words, everything changes. Everything changes. Uh, Proust writes that at the end of his seventh volume. Grief disappears as well as joy. So if you're going through bad times, they're going to change. And if you're going through good times, be aware that they're going to change also. Um, But you're right. I've been lucky to spend a lot of time with 
um, with monks, including Leonard Cohen. And one of the Catholic monks, who's a very close friend who lives in Big Sur, California, sent me a couple of days ago um, just a simple sentence, the best cure for anxiety is thinking about others. And the other monk I've been thinking about a lot and I was in contact with over the last weekend was um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, with whom I've been talking for 45 years. And the last time I talked, I, I saw him in person, his phrase was emotional disarmament. And I think it speaks to my not wanting to follow the news. And he thought that many of us are getting worked up by the media or by circumstances into a real state of fear, confusion, and rage. And none of those are productive. So he, of course, is a great exemplar and champion of kindness and sympathy. Nobody could be more emotional than he, but he was saying what we need is emotional, emotional disarmament to use our mind and to use the chances when we, we get to sit still to, to cut through the panic and rage that, let's say, reading the day's reports or the latest tweets from some person or other put us into, and to get to that open meadow on the far side of the cluttered freeway, which is where our best self lives. And it doesn't mean living without emotions, but it means living as much as possible with the emotions that are constructive and not the ones that are only going to hurt us and everybody else. And one thing I like about it when he says that kind of thing is he always says he's just a regular human like the rest of us. And this is not something for superhumans or Dalai Lamas only. It's something that really everybody can do. And I think I often remind myself, I have a choice every day when I wake up Am I going to turn to the things that open me up and make me larger than I am? Or am I going to turn to the things that diminish me and then cut me up into fragments? And it's in response to that question that I read books instead of following the newspaper, or I take a walk instead of turning on the TV, or I talk to my wife instead of uh, scrolling through my emails. So I think most of us have that choice every morning. And it's not as if the fault lies in our government or our circumstances or our machines. We have more power than we know, not to control the world, but to control our responses um, to the world. I, I should say quickly for our listeners that not only do you take walks and not only do you read books, um, but also as a daily habit, you play ping pong. <laughs> I, knew you would know, yes. you, I knew you would know what I was about to say. Yes, and I'm sorry to say, Paul, we're not allowed currently to play um, ping pong in the local health club in Japan, but we are invited and encouraged to walk the treadmill. So I walk the treadmill for 30 minutes or 60 minutes every day now next to my wife and lines of my ping pong fr friends rather than um, playing ping pong. Is the news of um, the Olympics being postponed in Japan uh, something that has reached you and that you have a reaction to at all? A very wise decision. Um, it, mean, it makes for a better Olympics. It means Japan has more time to prepare. And Japan has been enjoying a wonderful tourist boom in the last couple of years leading up to the Olympics. It's been severed in the last couple of months, but now it will have a chance to recover and maybe they'll get 15 more months of good um, tourism between let's hope, June of this year and um, August of next year. That's 14 months. Uh, so it's interesting. This year was meant to be the year of the Olympics, and it's been the year of um, the coronavirus. It was meant to be the year in which all the, the world came together under a single roof in 
um, that the Olympics represents, and it's actually the year in which everybody has been um, cut off from one another and forced to, into a sort of solitary confinement. But um, the Olympics will always be here. Japan will always be here. And I think in a curious way, being in solitary confinement, as many of us have been in this quarantine time, um, has reminded us of what we share, has brought us into a richer sense of community, and actually has brought us together. You right now are in the same position as somebody in Italy who's in the same position as somebody in China or parts of China. Um, and that's not, not a terrible thing. You know, I've been wondering as i as i was thinking of of calling you i've been wondering what would someone we both love so much and who truly believes in the religion of kindness think about this moment and i may very well call her up if she's up for it which is jan morris i really wonder yeah. i really yeah. wonder what would she what would she make of this moment she's lived a life long enough in her 93rd year now to remember something that had a global proportion which i've never lived i've never lived through something that affects the whole world do you have a sense how she might she might take to this moment you're right i think she would see this as an opportunity for for kindness I think humanity has always lain at the center of her work much more um, than mere travel. I don't think Jan Morris is interested in movement. She's interested in getting to know other people and other cultures, <clears throat> um, which now you can do without moving. If you're in Los Angeles or London, the rest of the world has come to your doorstep. And I think the reason that so many of us trust uh, Jan Morris as an observer of the modern world is she's ideology-free. And I think the beauty of a moment like this is also that it releases us from ideology. Ideology doesn't help us in a moment of suffering. And I think we've all felt how the world is more and more polarized, our nation is more and more polarized, sometimes our community or household is more and more polarized in the last 15, 20 years. And in moments of human need and possibility, I think that falls away and we're reminded of... Um, much more useful ways of seeing the world. So I don't know if that's what Jan would say, but I think she embodies it beautifully. Um, traveling the world with an open mind and an open heart um, and, and not pushing people into categories of you belong to this party, that party, you're Chinese or Venetian or New Yorker. Um, she, she sees something deeper than that. You know, it, it reminds me of, of a comment you've made about travel where you say that we should travel in order to listen to the world rather than to lecture to it? Well, I've forgotten I have said that, but this is certainly um, the perfect moment for listening, isn't it? Um, we have the chance to do that, and it's, a, it's an art that we've forgotten in our clamorous times. You mentioned noise and a, a few minutes ago, and I think that's the affliction of right now, and that's where we hear more and more about what will help us cut through the noise. And in the midst of the real suffering and tragedy this virus has brought, um, I think some people are going to notice what cuts through the noise and what, what really sustains us at the core. Pico, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for helping us launch the quarantine tapes. I, I can't wait to, to see you in, in real life. But for the moment, I will satisfy myself with, with this moment in time and Thank you for, for taking my call all the way in Japan, where I think for you it's the next day already. 
which tomorrow in the very better sense. Um, thank you for thinking to include me, dear Paul, and uh, please stay safe and well. You too. All the best, and I hope you'll get back to ping pong before long. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support. 